campaign or hide? I'm fascinated to find out. Aren't you? Campaign or hide? Premier Doug Ford has decided, let's take a break. It's summer! Just in time for a really good weekend. So that's exactly what the Ontario legislature is going to do. They're going to take a break. And they're not going to come back when they normally do just after Labor Day. Kind of when the kids go back to school, legislature comes back into session. Looks like they're going to wait until after the federal election. So which is it? Andrea Horvath says, it's Hyde. Other suggestions say, no, no, it's, it's campaigning. So which is it? And we're not going to know. At least not right now. I don't know if we'll ever know. We'll need all of the political pundits to get together and bang heads and decide. I don't know if we'll know, but here's the way that it breaks down. Either you're taking this extended break because you want to campaign and help the conservative government on a very, or help the the conservative, sorry, try to form a government in the very, very difficult place to play Ontario, and Andrew Scheer, the leader of the federal conservatives, doesn't want Doug Ford helping him at all. So he just wants him to go away until after the election is over. One or the other. And you know what? That's the thing. I don't think there's a door number three here. It is one of those things or it is the other. Fascinated to know which one it is. I don't know how that news is going to shake out, but when it does... We'll make sure and talk about it. Lots to go on to today, and some of it does deal with the Ontario government saying, summertime, we're going to talk in about a half hour from now with Jerry McCartney, the CEO of the London Chamber of Commerce, and we'll look at beer sales because this is one of the last things that they're trying to get through before they close out so that more people are able to sell beer in more places around the province. And Jerry's got some unique thoughts on what this will mean. And I also want to share a story with you because last night, as I was watching the Raptors game, happened to be talking to somebody who has a family member who got into the craft beer business, actually got listings in the liquor store in the LCBO and decided, you know what, this this is a tough market. I don't think this is going to be as lucrative as we had hoped and actually pulled out. You look at all of the craft beer breweries, that is some tough sledding right now. So we'll talk about that. Jerry Diaz is going to join us, president of Unifor, as we look at the proposed cap on wages in this province. So that's a very interesting one as well, as the government says, bye-bye, summertime. If it is going to be summertime, here's hoping that the weather will help the farmers. Because if you look right now, and here's what we're going to hear in an hour from now on London Live, and it'll be interesting to dig into this a little further. This year has been the worst year in a century for farming. In Ontario. That can't be. Every year seems bad. Very difficult to have a perfect year in farming. And we'll ask what that would be. Perfect planting season? What exactly is that? But this year apparently has been the worst year in a century. So what can that mean? We'll look at it. But let's begin with the fact that this is June 6th, 2019. 75 years ago today. You had a lot of brave individuals giving their lives 
We lost 359 Canadians that day at Normandy. We had 715 wounded. Thousands of others were killed and wounded. In the end, it was one of the most important battles of the Second World War. And we haven't had a Third World War. So you go back and you look at whatever we're doing today, yammering away about politics, talking about the Toronto Raptors. All of that goes back 75 years ago. Our world would have been a different place, very different place. And we've got a lot of people to thank for it. What we're going to do throughout the show today in honor of D-Day, the 75th anniversary, is thanks to our friends at Historica Canada, we're going to play you some stories from some of the veterans who were there. Some may not be with us today, but Historica Canada and the Memory Project captured their stories. And some of them are, are pretty wild. We'll have two, maybe even three, that we can take you through. And the men involved do a very good job describing what they saw, what it was like. So that's coming up. The first one will be in about 10 minutes from now when we hear from D-Day veteran John Garnett O'Neill, who won a war medal, won a defense medal, was a member of the Queen's Own Soldiers. So he's coming up in about 10 minutes. But why don't we look at Normandy just for a quick moment. If, if you want a little bit of an overview historically, this spot was Hitler's Atlantic Wall. And as much as we hear Juno Beach or in the United States, you'll hear a lot about Omaha or Utah Beach. That's where the Americans landed. Omaha Beach was very, very tough, very tough place to land. Utah Beach was a, a little bit of a, a safer place to land. Juno Beach was very tough. There's Sword Beach. There's Gold Beach. So this is a, a strip of coastline. And they were supposed to go in on the 5th. And weather made it. Too difficult to do that, so they decided, let's postpone it for a day. Soldiers found out very abruptly, hey, what we said about the 5th, not happening. It's now the 6th. And they knew they were going into something big. They had their instructions, and they were just there to try and carry out those instructions and really hope for the best. They didn't talk a lot about the different beaches. They were going after Bernier-sur-Mer, and that is right around Hitler's Atlantic Wall. France was occupied by Germany at that spot. And the fact that the Allies were able to take it swung the Second World War and changed our fates, really did. So joining us to start London Live is a man who has done a whole lot over the last few years and whose project has done a whole lot to capture the stories of veterans. The president and CEO of Historica Canada joins us right now, Anthony Wilson-Smith. Anthony, when we look back on the anniversary of D-Day, and I gave just a, a couple little things, some of the numbers of casualties that Canadians were involved with, some of the places that they landed, why this was such an important point in the Second World War. When you look back on D-Day 75 years ago, what do you feel we need to know? 
I think there are two things, Mike. The first is, you know, that the world that we live in is shaped by the events that happened that day and up to the end of World War II and shaped for the better. In other words, we beat back, you know, a really, really nasty regime that would have made things a, a lot harder than they are now. The second, though, that's really important is, you know, the Canada we live in, the people who lived that day, who were affected by that day, they walk amongst the still. It still feels like a different time, but we have veterans of that day with us. We, you know, between 50 and 100 at minimum. We also have whole communities that were shaped differently because of those who were lost, who never came home. We have, you know, adults today who grew up without fathers as a result, people who were widowed, who lived among, you know, some personalities and lives shaped by it. You and other members of the Memory Project have been able to sit down and talk with veterans, talk with people who were there, who survived. Mm -hmm. How difficult is it for them to tell their story? Well, you know, the interesting thing, Mike, is for years they would not tell their story. And, in fact, in these, it was really, I guess, when they were collectively in their 80s and also when we started this project, and suddenly there was a place to do it. And I think that the veterans themselves started to realize, if we don't tell those stories, who will? They'll be lost. All of that sacrifice, all that hardship we went through, all those friends of ours that we lost, their stories will never be known. So on that basis, they opened up. And so many times we've had family members, wives, children, grandchildren, who came up and said, those things he or she lived through, we never knew about that. That's just remarkable. We're just finding out about it. So very tough for them to talk about it. When they do start talking, does it become become easier? Do, do you get almost a... Uh, a feeling that that this story has been in there or this time this memory has been in there and and it just needed to come out Oh, yeah, it's cathartic for everybody involved, you know, for the, the veterans themselves, for those who hear it. Uh, you know, you kind of see the years fall away from these men now in their 80s and 90s talking about it, remembering life in their late teens, early 20s, and, and all of the difficulties. And, you know, it's, it's understanding that people really do want to hear about those experiences, and they see that. People are just riveted when they, you know, when, when their stories are told. And I think that gives an added sense of meaning. You know, everything I did so long ago still matters. People still care. And do you think that maybe wasn't there for a period of time where they were unsure whether it still mattered to people? Yeah, I think, well, I think, first of all, what they lived through was so horrific, so life-changing, that they tried to just kind of tuck it away in a box. And that was, you know, our equivalent of the greatest generation. These are people who were taught, you don't talk about your feelings if they're difficult. Just kind of man up, get through it. So it was, a, you know, a different mindset. And, um, and it was, you know, in seeing the, the years go on. The other thing is they were such a part of the community. You know, as a guy, myself, north of 50 in terms of age, you know, I remember, I remember the 70s, the 80s, when, you know, your hockey coach would be a World War II veteran, your bank manager, your neighbor would be. So it was more of a fact of life. It was that feeling, again, that, you know, the numbers are dwindling, the time is so far off, the stories have to be told. Anthony Wilson-Smith joining us, President and CEO of Historica Canada, and we're talking about what that project that began so many years ago has now given to us. We're actually going to hear from some of those veterans in just a few minutes. Anthony, in, in compiling things for the Memory Project, can you, can you basically look at, at how this has grown and, and what it has become? 
yeah, I can do that, like both in in local terms, meaning in your area and you know and beyond. So it began, oh, you know, ten, fifteen years ago, but with a handful of speakers, largely in the Toronto area, because that's where the head office, you know, has always been, and then building a national network. So for London alone, for example, we have fifteen active speakers in the area right now, and we've had fifty-two different people. Some of them, of course, just you know, lost through passing over the years. Um, last year alone, our speakers did more than a thousand visits in person. We, you know, in the last year alone, we reached more than half a million people across the country. And you know, since we started keeping records, it's 2008. So we're now 11 years in. We've reached more than 2.7 million people with direct visits. And then we also do DVDs for those areas that can't be reached with people again talking about their experiences firsthand. And that's a, you know, that's a big thing. Did you ever expect? back in 2008, that it would have the reach that it has? Well, you know, I wasn't, you know, I've, I've been here since 2011, Mike, so what, you know, can't take credit for the program starting. In a way, yeah, I would have, because the thing is that, you know, so much of history is focused on on dates, on places, on maps, on that, when what really gets to people is, what was it like on the ground? What was it like in person? You know, thinking, well, if that was me, what would I have done? And these are the people who can answer it, the veterans, you know, scared 18, 19-year-old kids, never been away from Canada before. Canada was a much more rural society, and they just got up and went off and did it. And they're, and they're the ones who know what it's like to, you know, to land on a beach and have your best friend die within a couple of feet of you or survive or to be scared to death for not hours but days at a time, you know, to have bullets land near you or go through things or to be wounded. And it's just, you know, that's normal human experience to wonder about that, wonder what it was like, and these are the people with the answers. Well, we thank you for doing what you're doing, and Anthony, thank you so much for talking about the Memory Project and talking about D-Day with us. Thank you for the chance to talk about it. I very much appreciate it. President and CEO of Historica Canada, Anthony Wilson-Smith, on D-Day and the Memory Project. If you go to Historica Canada's website, you can easily find all of the things we're talking about, or just Google Memory Project, Google Veteran Stories. In a moment, we're going to hear one of those stories, and you'll see exactly what Anthony means. Someone who takes you onto the ground, onto the beach, on D-Day, to tell you what it was like. First, we'll say hi to Marilyn. Marilyn, how are you on this Thursday? Well, I'm just fine. I haven't talked to you in a few days, and I've missed you. But anyways, I remember D-Day. I would be 9 or 10 then, and we were sitting around our big oval kitchen table. We had a big kitchen. I was raised in the city, but we had a big kitchen, and we had a big old oak kitchen table. And my father fought the First World War, and in fact, he was a hero and decorated right on the battlefield for dragging his wounded commander just under 400 feet while the enemy planes were dropping bombs. And uh, my brother was in the Second uh, World War. So, of course, that war talk was always, always around the table because uh, my mother's uh, people, their home in Hastings, England, and Sussex, was bombed. So anyways, I remember the excitement and the talk around the table. And I can remember how devastated I was when Roosevelt died because he was my pretend grandfather. Hmm. Marilyn, amazing for you to share all of that with us. Thank you for that. All right, dear, and you have a good day. You have a great day as well. See, Marilyn, still touched by people who fought for their country, 
and for this side in the war. We're going to take a break. Up next, we will hear from someone who took part in the D-Day invasion, took part in Operation Overlord. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. It is the 75th anniversary of D-Day, and we just spoke with the president and CEO of Historica Canada, Anthony Wilson-Smith, and he talked about the Memory Project and collecting those stories, which they started to do back in 2008 and have been doing ever since. Here is one of those stories. This is D-Day veteran John Garnet O'Neill, a recipient of the War Medal, the Defense Medal, and a member of the Queen's Own Soldiers. We were packed up what we had, and uh, we, we were put on trucks and taken down to, I don't know, maybe it was Portsmouth, I don't know, to the ships and put on a ship. And we're on that damn ship for two or three days underneath it, terrible conditions, really. Then we got our briefing on the ship that we were now going to go in at, uh, on D-Day, uh, which was supposed to be the 5th, uh, to Benier-Shemir and in landing crafts. And uh, all of a sudden, we were told it was canceled, and we were going in on the 6th of uh, June. And away we went on the 6th of June. Uh, there was obstacles along the beach, Tremendous obstacles with, uh, I guess there were mines on them. And we had a sailor in charge of our little sh- little boat. There was about 20 of us in ours. And uh, we waited for a wave to go over the uh, thing, over this obstacle. But unfortunately, it was misjudged. And uh, the front of the vehicle hit this, the ramp of this uh, landing craft, infantry, hit the uh, mine and blew out the front, and we started to sink. Um, and the, I heard the sergeant yell, everybody get out, because uh, the other ship, uh, the other uh, landing craft had the platoon commander and the headquarters in, and the other sections, our two sections were in that one. So we all jumped out. I was the last out because I was at the back. I jumped out the back and went in, into the water up to my... Uh, waste and the others managed to get up ahead out the sides and by the time i got through the wiring and the obstacles nobody had been killed at this stage just to blew out the ramp i managed to get by them and onto the beach and i couldn't find a soul <laughs> rather ridiculous then i started i knew where i had to go and i looked at this uh, i think everybody remembers this uh, building we were told it was a train station but they told me it was a hotel or something later on. And I landed in front of that, and I took off up towards it. And I said, hey, this is crazy. This place is loaded with mines. And bless the tank corps, one tank, a flail tank, came up behind me and started to clear the mines, and I got behind him. By this time, I didn't know where the platoon was. I followed him, but I knew where I had to go. And eventually, I after about, Oh, maybe three or three or four minutes. I got out from behind the tank and ran up the beach to and rejoined the rest of the platoon. They were um, at the seawall waiting to go into Benier-Sumer, and uh, we were all doing very well, actually. 
And uh, we got organized and went over the wall and started going through the town of Beni Samir. We got behind a copse of uh, bushes, uh, and we were to go up this through this wheat field, I guess it was, up to this copse of wood and see what was going on up there. I got on the left side. There was a fence going right up to the copse of wood. I got on the left side of the fence. The rest of the section got on the right side of the wood, and we went up about 30 or 40 yards, and we we came under fire, and that's when... The sergeant yelled and screamed from behind us from the position where we left. They duck, and uh, we did. And he said, crawl back. So we crawled back, and uh, I found out two or three members of the section were dead. They're not dead, but hadn't been shot and weren't there. So he pushed us all back, and we all backed down and made little fox uh, holes and sat there. Sat? Who the hell sat? We <laughs> laid out plane hugged flat, and uh, waited to see what was going to happen. Then after about 15, 20 minutes, uh, this uh, sniper, it was a sniper we found out later, was firing at us and got us in the wheat field all by himself, and uh, he stood up. Fortunately, the sergeant was looking and got his gun and shot him. So that was the end of that day, more or less, and he said, rest, we're staying here. And when I woke in the morning, about uh, five or six o'clock, I looked around, and the padre was behind me about 20 or 30 yards with the bodies of my people of my own section. I guess he was saying prayers over them. Then we came on and moved and moved and moved. From then on, it was just a case of... One day after another, we'd go forward, you go backwards and up and down and come under fire and see a lot of things like bodies. We weren't, we weren't really used to seeing bodies. We hadn't seen them in training. Uh, all these happenings that occurred were just normal little battles and fights and so on. Nothing extraordinary. You'd lose some, you'd gain some. That is John Garnett O'Neill and his experience on D-Day. We'll take a break for news. Coming up, we will talk some Ontario politics. We'll take a look at the sale of beer, a couple of interesting thoughts about it. Plus, we are also going to talk about a potential cap on salaries of unionized workers. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Good afternoon. It is 1.30. I'm Jacqueline LaBelle in downtown London. Mostly cloudy skies, 21 degrees, 25 with the humidity. U.S. President Donald Trump paid tribute to Canada's contribution to the liberation of Europe from the Nazis. Trump was speaking at a commemoration ceremony in France for the 75th anniversary of D-Day, one of the most pivotal days of the Second World War. He referenced the robust sense of honor and loyalty of Canadian soldiers. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau addressed a gathering on Juneau Beach, saying that on the battlefields of Normandy, Francophones, Anglophones, Indigenous peoples and new Canadians came together as one. Trudeau says it's possible he could meet directly with Chinese President Xi Jinping when the two leaders attend the G20 summit later this month in Japan. 
Trudeau in France for D-Day 75th anniversary commemorations told reporters his government is working on securing a one-on-one discussion with the Chinese leader. I look forward to being at the G20 in, in a few weeks as an opportunity to engage with a number of uh, world leaders uh, with whom we have either good working relationships or challenges. And uh, the opportunity to uh, engage with the Chinese president directly is certainly something that we are we are looking at. Canada's relationship with its second biggest trading partner has deteriorated rapidly since the December arrest of a senior high-tech executive in Vancouver following an extradition request from the U.S. China has since detained two Canadians on allegations of espionage, sentenced two Canadians to death for drug-related convictions, and blocked key agriculture shipments such as canola. Ontario's introduced legislation to cap broader public sector wage increases to an average of 1% a year for three years. That includes teachers and staff at post-secondary institutions and hospitals. Treasury Board President Peter Bethlenfalvy says the bill would ensure that increases in public sector compensation reflect the fiscal situation of the province. The progressive conservative government is attempting to eliminate an $11.7 billion deficit. Ontario recently started the bargaining process with the largest teachers' unions. More than a million broader public sector employees would be affected by the legislation. Global Affairs says it is aware of two Canadians who were abducted in Ghana. Local authorities say the two were attending Kusami Technical University as part of an exchange program. Global Affairs is providing assistance to the victims' families, but is offering no other information in order to safeguard efforts to win the victims' release. You're listening to 980 CFPL. We opened the show, and I was wondering, I'm still fascinated to know, which it's going to be. Is it hiding or campaigning? Campaigning or hiding? What is it that Ontario Premier Doug Ford is doing in making the legislature go silent all the way until after the federal election? Big, long adjournment. Longer than normal. Well, Here's something from Matthew, and I like this. I was kind of wondering, I had to be one or the other. Here's Matthew's perspective on it. He tweeted at Stubbs980, Hey, it's both doors. Doug Ford hurts the CPC chances every day in session where they can be called out, and being not in session potentially frees up a lot of staffers who ran winning campaigns last fall to run local federal campaigns. Huh? See, I was looking too narrowly. I thought, what is it? Is it is it Doug Ford campaigning for Andrew Scheer? Or is it Andrew Scheer wanting Doug Ford to go away so that nothing happens? Hmm? I like that. Okay. As Matthew says, yeah, got to look at the broader picture. It is more than likely both of those things. And Matthew, you made it make sense. Here's something that, well, it kind of makes sense. It kind of doesn't. The Ford government is very good at distraction tactics. We know that. They give us things to talk about on talk radio. They are talk radio dream machines. That's what they are. Dream weavers, that's them. And they give us things like speeding limit or speed limits and where alcohol is going to be sold and all kinds of little things that we get to chit-chat about. And in the end, we wind up talking about those things. And then some of the more administrative pieces are 
put in place. And they're less sexy, and we don't talk about them as much. It's kind of that art of magic. Oh, look over here. Oh, while your eyes are watching that, I'm doing something over here that you're not paying attention to. Ta-da! Rabbit out of a hat. And so what we're looking to do in all of this is figure out what it is that the Ford government has in mind and what some of the fallout or potential outcomes could be for things like the sale of beer and wine in more places. Now, let's face it. This is this is not anything that is completely out of the ordinary. We have a lot of spots, a spot in London that is essentially selling beer in a grocery store, but this would be widespread. And we looked at this from a few perspectives last week, but this is something that they're hoping to have closed out as they finish their latest session at Queen's Park and call it a day for the entire summer and then some, because we'll be into autumn by the time they get back into action in the legislature. This is one of those things that they are certainly looking to complete. So what does all of that mean? What exactly is happening? Well... We'll wait to see how the actual legislation plays out, of course. But at the same time, you're trying to figure out how things are going to work. And we'll have a couple of thoughts on that in just a moment. We're going to take a break. We also have Jerry Diaz, president of Unifor, due to join us as well as we talk about another issue, and that being the capping of wages in this province for certain workers. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Looks like the last day at Queen's Park for a little while, and that means getting some things done. And one of those would be what to do with the old contract with the beer store in the province. Joining us right now is the CEO of the London Chamber of Commerce, Mr. Jerry McCartney. Jerry, when you look at kind of the odds and ends that are being tied up right now, if we are to talk about this contract with the beer store, how do you read what's happening here? Well, I'm of two minds on I think a lot of people are. This is a, a debate that's been going on for years, not the first government to have attempted to tackle it. Um, on the one hand, being with the Chamber of Commerce, you would expect me to be supporting small, uh, medium-sized businesses, and I am. I think there's ample opportunity and room for microbrewers, smaller brewers, to get that foothold, that space, if you will, uh, on the retail shelves at both the uh, the Brewers Retail and Liquor Control Board. However, on the other side, we've got what we call contract law and contract ethics. And when you sign a contract, such as the, the Master Framework Agreement, which is what they have with the beer store, it has a time, it has a, a period in which the contract is, is valid. Uh, and to just break that in the middle of a contract, I don't think sends a very good message to either those folks who are employed in that industry or to other investors, multinationals, global investors, or otherwise, uh, looking at Ontario as a safe uh, place to do business because it doesn't send a very good message. There are other ways to approach this, uh, more incremental. It's a very complex system. Some argue it's the best in the world. Some argue it's the worst in the world. Uh, and I have some concerns about how we're approaching. I think there could have been a, a longer ramp-up period with more notice time to Brewers Retail, Liquor Control Board, and others to say, hey, look, we're, we're having a real good look at this. We want your input. Uh, and, and be aware that over the next three, four, five years, there's going to be significant changes. To do it this way, I'm not sure is the best way to do it. 
if we look at how it may play out, can you see it having impact on anything in particular? Yeah, there's all kinds of speculation on that, Mike. But if you think about who will be managing this inventory, uh, I have all kinds of respect and time for the small operator, the grocery store guy, the, the convenience store people. Uh, but I can't imagine that they're going to carry, A, the assortment or quality that, that we've come to expect uh, at both uh, Brewers Retail and Liquor Control Board. Uh, I think they'll minimize the, the amount of shelf space uh, made available to those products. And so I think you may see a decline uh, in the quality and the assortment of products that we'll have available, which we currently have now. Uh, and you'll know that I think that's next to Costco now in North America that the Liquor Control Board, for instance, is the largest uh, distributor of beverage alcohol products in the world. So we've got this huge assortment now. You pay a price for it. I think it's. I think we're we could do a better job in terms of our, our competitive pricing on those products. But we do get great assortment and great quality. The other thing that I value. Uh, and I don't know whether you drink wine or, or alcohol products, but I like to know that what it says on that label when I go to buy it uh, is exactly what's inside. And that's what you get when you have these two regulatory bodies. Uh, y- you know that the product you're buying is what it says inside. And I value that. I trust that. I'm not sure where it's going, uh, whether that will remain in place or whether there will be other regulators to take over that spot or that that regulatory process, but it would concern me if they don't have that. Here's the other thing, too, Mike. We have uh, a reputation for having one of the best recycling programs in all of North America with the the brewer's retail handling all of your beer returns, all of your wine bottle returns, etc. They do a very, very efficient job of that. And we know that those products end up in our recycling system and get reused for other purposes. I don't know whether the corner store variety shop owner is going to be prepared to handle those returns. I don't think so. Uh, and so if you don't do it that way, what way do you do it? Do you establish well, a private sector recycling facility where we take all of our bottles back, making it necessary two or three trips? I don't know. This is These are the things that I think could have been thought out uh, a lot more clearly and over a longer period of time rather than this very immediate thing that we're looking at today. Jerry, thank you as always for your thoughts on this. You raised some very good points, and we'll see how they play out. Always a pleasure. By the way, Mike, I, I would hope you're going to your employer and asking for time off till October, but getting paid full price for that time. <laughs> I'm just saying. I don't know that too many people would be able to do that and uh, and have it happen. Well, I know I couldn't, but uh, apparently the legislature is. Well, that's what they're doing, and it's going to be an extended stay away. Jerry, yeah, all the best. Nice vacation. Thanks, Mike. Always a pleasure <laughs> Bye-bye. talking. Bye-bye. That's Jerry McCartney. He is the CEO of the London Chamber of Commerce. So that's one of the issues that they're dealing with, the contract with the beer store. And Jerry raises a lot of things. Is it going to affect selection? Is it going to affect recycling? Who is going to oversee this? There are some question marks, and as he says, it's another one of those things coming at us at a very fast pace. And now, all governments do this. They get to this point where it's, oh, it's going to be summertime. So let's get all this stuff done, and then we'll go off, and then we'll go into our constituencies, constituencies, and then we'll play there for a while. That's what they do. So now they're trying to get all this stuff through, We have also seen them table a bill at Queen's Park that would see wage increases capped for more than a million of the province's public sector workers. 
And this is another one of those issues that they're hoping to resolve before they go away for the summer. Let's get a little insight into this. The president of Unifor joins us right now, Mr. Jerry Diaz. Jerry, how are things? How are you today? I'm okay. When you look at the tabling of this particular bill, we just talked with Jerry McCartney, the CEO of the London Chamber of Commerce, about something that that came in quickly, which was the decision with beer and wine sales. How about this particular bill? Do you feel it's come in fast and furiously as well? Oh, there's no question about it. I mean, they're flying by the seat of their pants as a as a government, I really, I'm really starting to question what their economic platform is. I mean, so far it's been beer and fear. Not exactly a, not exactly a concept that government should be running by. But look, you know, I'm sure there's public sector workers today that are shaking their heads saying, I voted for Doug Ford, and now the most I can get is a 1% wage increase. I mean, inflation is running at about 2%. General wage increases are going anywhere between one5 and 2%. So somehow capping some workers that make very low wages, and I'm talking about uh, PSWs that work in long-term care facilities, uh, a lot of people that work in health care that make, you know, not a heck of a lot above minimum wage. This is going to be a real slap to them. Well, the legislation was tabled yesterday. We saw it pass the first reading. Vote was 64 to 40, if that gives any indication. And now, here we go again. Can we look at anything historically that we could call similar to something like this? Uh, look, we are going back to the Mike Harris days. Um, except, frankly, if I take a look at the attacks uh, on the social service, think about the attacks. We're, we're cutting 3,000 teachers, and the government is saying that it's good because it'll keep, make kids more resilient, as if, you know, say things like that, as if we're all fools, cut funding to kids with autism. I mean, took $17 million out of to deal, help women that are dealing with violence. So, look, this is a government that's taken us back to the Mike Harris days, and but, frankly, I think... Doug Ford makes Mike Harris look like a socialist, for crying out loud. I mean, this is a disaster. We're talking with Jerry Diaz, president of Unifor, and we're looking at a piece of legislation that was tabled yesterday, which would see wage increases capped for the province's public sector workers at 1% for three years. Now, that's one not 1% per year. That's 1% for three years. Am I reading that right? My understanding, it was a percent a year. Okay, all right. That's what I understood. But look, you can't on one uh, on one hand give three point eight billion dollars in tax cuts to corporations, and then say to a hundred thousand, uh, excuse me, to uh, to a million public sector workers uh, that somehow you're going to pay for it. It just doesn't make any sense. But they people really need to understand the groups that they're reaching. I mean, you're talking about orange. You're talking about paramedics that work for Orange. Like I said, you're talking about uh, uh, private support workers, uh, public support workers uh, in long-term care facilities. You're, look, you're talking about people that are caring for the elderly. You're talking about people that are impacting daycare centers. You're talking about, this is a big deal. So there's this incredible perception that all oh, public sector workers are making hand over fist. They have such great pensions. You know, some make a decent living wage, but so many are just working and scrambling to make ends meet. So this is just a foolish piece of legislation, but we ought not to be surprised by it because the conservative mentality has always been truly anti-worker. So there's nothing that they're doing that is actually surprising me, including the outrageous cuts that they're imposing on on some of the most vulnerable in our society. First thing they did, they canceled uh, the increase to minimum wage from 14 to $15 an hour. 
uh, they eliminated the pilot project, uh, you know, for, for those who are the most vulnerable in our society, the pilot project, as it was a basic income project. So they're attacking working people, they're attacking the poor, so look, we better get used to it. And if you end up with an Andrew Shearer as a prime minister, it's even going to be worse. We're talking with Jerry Dias, president of Unifor. Jerry, one last thing we heard from Smokey Thomas, the president of OPSU, earlier today, saying that they're going to have a long, hot summer, referring to MPPs, that his union will target the constituency offices. He says all their fundraisers, all their golf tournaments, all their barbecues, and we'll screw every one of them up. That was his quote. Would your union be looking to do things similarly? Oh look, I'm a I'm a I'm a much softer personality than my friend Smokey. Listen, I'm with Smokey. I mean, ultimately, this group of people have to be exposed for who they are, and and you are going to see a lot more of this. Uh, when you saw thirty thousand people on the on the on the lawn at Queens Park, uh, you know, screaming against the education cuts, you're going to see a lot more of this because people didn't vote for this. People went, they gave Ford a majority government, but they didn't expect that he was going to do any of this stuff. He didn't run on a platform like Tim Hudak did to say that he's going to, you know, impose wage freezes, going to cut off uh, funding to autism, cut off 3,000 teachers. Look, he didn't run on this platform. So, you know, people better get used to it because he's going to be doing this for another three years until we're going to have the opportunity uh, to fix what was obviously a poor mistake. Jerry, thanks for your time today. Have a great day. That's Jerry Dias, president of Unifor. So, as you would expect, that's the reaction to the tabling of legislation yesterday that would see a cap on wage increases for public sector workers. It all comes down to the amount of money that this province finds itself in the hole. $11.7 billion deficit. We know that it's out there. How do you address it? How quickly should you address it? And this should be a day when you cannot either table or pass legislation, in my mind. If you're going to go away for a while, you shouldn't be able to do that. Should you? Let's get your thoughts on this. We'll take some time if you want to talk about whether it is beer or wine and where it should be sold and that contract and how it's being dealt with or the idea that public sector workers would have their wage increases capped at a percent a year. Phone lines are open. 519-643-2222. That's 519-643-2222. We'll also let you know what is still ahead in Hour 2 of London Live. We'll do that next. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Let's close out Hour 1 of London Live with our good buddy Richard. Richard, your thoughts on what you're hearing today as we prepare for a long break from the legislature in Ontario. Well, I just got to say one thing, Mike, you know. I have to agree with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and I have to agree with the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, and I certainly have to agree with the London Chamber of Commerce, Jerry McCartney. When you start breaking contracts, Mike, you're sending out a negative message across North America. I don't understand why Premier Doug Ford, right, would put on all commercial vehicles in the province of Ontario and put up signs, right, saying that we're open for business and then do something totally contradictory, right, by breaking contracts. I don't care whether it's a union contract, Mike, or I don't care whether it's a business contract. To me, a contract is a contract is a contract. I agreed with Craig Wright when he said it was a ridiculous contract to begin with, but unfortunately, that ridiculous contract has been signed, and therefore, we should honor it, and then after it expires, right, then we go full guns. 
But having said that, I want to say one thing that Jerry Dias conveniently, or if I'm saying his name correctly, mm-hmm. is it Dias or Diaz? Dias. Jerry Dias. He seems to conveniently forget that in 2003, the province of Ontario was $138.6 billion in debt. Fifteen years later, right, when Doug Ford took over on June the 7th of 2018, that debt stood at $346 billion. They managed, right, to triple that debt in 15 years that it took 136 years of other provincial governments, right, since Confederation, right, to accumulate. So what did he expect? Obviously, right, there's going to have to be some cuts, and we're all going to have to bite the bullet. Minimum paid wage workers on January the 1st this year, they had to bite the bullet. They didn't get their dollar an hour increase, right, from 14 to $15 an hour. I don't think it's too unreasonable, right, asking public sector workers for the next three years until we can start getting that deficit down and getting our fiscal house in order. I don't think it's being too unreasonable, right, to ask, right, or to ask them to accept a 1% pay increase over the next three years. And I just want to tell you one thing, Jerry Diaz, Premier Doug Ford, he's not too bad uh, in my books, right? At least he didn't do what I what happened right when I lived under a former NDP premier in the birthplace of Medicare. The first thing he did when he came in is he shut down 52 rural hospitals and one urban hospital. At least as far as I know, the Ford government hasn't announced shutting down any hospitals in this province yet, have they, Mike? Haven't heard it yet. Richard, got to go for news. Okay. Thanks so much for the thoughts. It was nice to talk to you. Bye-bye. Great to talk with you. News is on the way next. We're going to talk about farmers. Is this the worst year for planting that we've seen in 100 years? Could that be possible? We'll ask the question. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. couple things to get caught up on. Last hour, we were talking about beer sales and the contract with the beer store. want to read you a response from the beer store. They've released a statement. The chair of the board of the beer store, Charlie Angelakos, has done that, and I want to get to a little bit of that. But the optics of what the Ontario government is doing, and again, all governments will do this. They take a break. This is just a thing that happens. I'm not even sure why. Who started this? I'd have to go back in the old political science textbooks. I don't know who started this. I don't know what purpose it necessarily serves. Oh, go off into your constituencies. Okay, that's fine. But, you know, I'm I'm with Smokey Thomas from Opsu. Barbecues and all kinds of little feel-good things. You know, your job is to figure things out. And if things aren't figured out, and when I read you some statements from this statement released by the beer store, nothing is figured out. You could take a little while and continue to work. You really could. Why does it have to be today? You table legislation yesterday on wage increases for public sector workers, and now you want to hammer through what you're doing with the beer store contract. I mean, no, take your time. And the idea that this break is going to last beyond the federal election doesn't sit well with me, even if it does mean that conservative MPPs are going to help campaign in their own constituencies. I that's it's, this is this is not the right optics for this, and you know we heard it already. Uh, we've now heard it again. Rose says, "Can you imagine a job where you can take months off and be paid big bucks?" I think they should be real, like all of us are. Give them five weeks holidays a year, 
And for some people, that's generous. Rose, thank you for being as generous as you are. Uh, if they want to take other time off, do it without pay. My tax dollars at work, ridiculous. The optics are bad. They always are. This is not anything that is new, but the fact that it will be extended beyond the federal election is. So if you want to weigh in on that, you can. 519-643-2222. But I do want to get to the beer store response to the legislation. And here's what the beer store is saying. And I, I don't mind this. I mean, they say in their statement, the government of Ontario's legislation is an attempt to circumvent its obligation under the agreement, including terminating the agreement before 2026, which would be a violation of the agreement. We've already talked about all of these sorts of things. Um, says the beer store believes there is a mutually acceptable path to significantly accelerating the introduction of new retail locations for beer in Ontario while minimizing consumer beer price increases, minimizing incremental beer industry costs, and retaining as much government tax revenue as possible. And here's what they say. They would be willing to look at amendments to this. They would be, and here's the actual line. The beer store, brewers, and the government of Ontario have been attempting in good faith to negotiate amendments to the agreement in order to address the objectives of the government. And again, they believe there's a mutually acceptable path to getting some things done here. But that's going to be impeded by the fact there's nobody to talk to anymore. That You can't really work this out. If a negotiated amendment is not reached and the government of Ontario decides to proclaim the act into law, the beer store will vigorously enforce its right to remedies, including damages, when the government breaches its legal obligations. And that's ultimately what we have here. This is what we talked about last week in when, when this story kind of rose to the surface a little more. When you have a big corporation, and that's what the Ontario government is, and you have other big corporations... And we've got, what, three major corporations that own the beer store. What do you have when things don't go right in the sandbox? You have a legal fight. And what do big corporations do? They hire big lawyers. Those big lawyers are very good at what they do. And it ends up being very, very costly for all. And ultimately, the Ontario government is playing with our money. So if you're going to pick a fight and this is going to go through courts and this is going to get messy... Was it worth it in the first place? I thought your goal was to save money in all of this. And I don't believe that's what will happen here. I don't believe it'll be a major change to everybody's life. But when you're looking at at trying to save money or, or make things work in a better way, I'm not sure that this is it. I really am not. You know, more locations in some towns for sure. Southwestern Ontario has been booming thanks to all of those retirees from Toronto, even southern Ontario. Windsor, as far down as there, has been booming. We need a few more beer stores in a few locations, but overall, I don't see that this is helping. And Jerry McCartney brought up a really good point about the recycling program that does exist and the question of what will happen to that. So lots still to be decided here. This has been a rotten spring. I don't think too many people have enjoyed this. If you're a duck, sure. We got we had Chrissy who emailed last week saying that she actually saw a duck in a pothole. 
We've had a rotten spring where road conditions have been hurt by all of the water out there, the soft ground, and ducks, they've been liking it. Other than that, the rest of us have not. You know who really hasn't been liking it? Farmers. In fact, are we getting to a point where the wetness of this spring is having a true impact And if so, what is that impact? Well, joining us right now is the chair of the Grain Farmers of Canada, Marcus Harley. Marcus, I guess let's boil this right down. We've come closer and closer to actual summer, due to get some good weather this weekend, according to John Wilson. How would you sum up what the weather has been like for farmers, though, this spring? It's uh, very easy to sum up. Uh, Frustrating. Uh, First of all, uh, we're getting really late into uh, the planting season. Like uh, we're talking already first week of June. Uh, A lot of the corn and soybean uh, acres in Ontario have not been planted yet. And uh, like we always say, corn and beans don't grow in a bag. So it has to be out on the field. Like, uh, we're getting more precipitation than normal and uh, heavy rainfalls. And uh, what that does is certainly uh, delay planting. It also um, creates challenges of what can be planted in certain fields uh, because of, first of all, you can't uh, go in while you have to make a decision. Do you need to change up your seed to an earlier variety? Do you need to maybe to put a different crop? Uh, so there's many challenges that the farmer is facing this year. And probably no absolute answers in terms of what will work and what won't work. In terms of getting planting done, have farmers been able to get seed into the ground in any cases, or have a lot been kind of trying to wait out the wet? Well, that's just the thing. Some have to wait out the wet because if you put that seed into the wrong condition, into the soil, it might either rot away or it's going to terminate and not be able to come through because it's all going to crust up on top. So, uh, again, those are the things that we often don't think about. A farmer is facing day in, day out with those certain challenges. And this year, the weather patterns, do not help because you can look maybe from far away, the field looks nice and dry, but underneath where the seed goes, the conditions are not perfect. So a lot of farmers are pushing it because uh, we do have uh, obligations to uh, some contracts that we have made with our uh, processing industries for the corn and soybeans. So we need to uh, make sure that we have something to supply those contracts with. And uh, that has to be grown out in our fields. We're talking with the chair of the Grain Farmers of Ontario about what has certainly been a challenging planting season for farmers. Marcus Herley with us. Let's try and paint what would have been a perfect season. If, if you were to describe the best of the best spring for farmers, when would the seeds be in and, and what would things be like? A uh, perfect season usually starts in the last weeks of April. And uh, it can stretch into, let's say, the 20th, 25th of May, like depending always on farm size. Also, like, we have to remember all that. But um, in a perfect scenario, those are the cases that we have to look at. If you uh, also have to, like, you also have to consider some of the uh, the challenges that we're having this year with the uh, 
different regions. Like uh, if you look at all the way south, South Ontario, we're just talking about Windsor area. Uh, there has been nothing done. And uh, for them, it's also getting really late because they have a longer growing season, but there are still challenges. Excess heat in the summertime can also damage a crop that's being put into the ground late in the season because the flowering uh, aspect of when the seed set happens and all that. When would a, a date be that you would say, okay, we're going to experience effects from the way the weather has been this spring have we reached it or is it still out there yeah we are at that point uh once we go into june um we first of all expect lower yields second of all we all know in the fall uh, the fall is gonna come a frost is gonna come Again, uh, I'm going to talk about all Ontario. We all have uh, maybe different climates, but uh, we have to adapt to that. And the growing season is short, so we're hoping for a late fall that's going to save our crop that's being put in very late this spring. If we got some nice weather, and this weekend we're actually in southwestern Ontario expecting some nice weather, sunny and 27, things that may help to dry the ground a little bit, how many days would you need in order to maybe turn things around and, and make things okay? Uh, a week of nice weather will let the farmers do a lot of work. Uh, but again, like I said before, some of the conditions are still not perfect. Are they going to get perfect? Maybe, but there's a big chance they won't because uh, some of that soil is just so saturated uh, that it needs so much time to dry out, and it's, uh, it's a different uh, uh, problem than we ever face. Like, there's actually all the farmers that I talk to, they've never experienced anything like this, and uh, so it's uh, one of in a century kind of a thing that's kind of coming through. And, uh, yes, we're going to have to work through it and hope for the best. And uh, luck has to be on our side somewhat. Marcus Herle joining us, chair of the Grain Farmers of Ontario. Last year, were there any signs of of anything that you had to get through, or even in the last five years? You mentioned this is kind of a one-in-a-100-year thing, but have we seen significant challenges recently? Uh, okay, yes, last year we did also have a challenge, and uh, that's specific to corn. Uh, it was the, um, the high down levels in, uh, in the corn harvest that we had, and that created a lot of challenges for a lot of farmers across the province of how they had to market their, uh, their corn that they harvested, and uh, still some of that corn that's in the bins. So it's a two-year thing that farmers are facing here like uh, last year with the corn this year with the uh, the planting season some of those farmers are getting really really stressed out and uh, it is not easy to work through situations like that and uh, I hope that this is going to turn around for those farmers because it's not easy to uh, to have challenges like that year after year where you're going to have to uh, make your things work, and uh, you never know what's going to happen. Finally, Marcus, do you hear farmers saying, I'm about done, I'm getting out? Um, I haven't heard that, but uh, I can tell you that I've talked to a farmer yesterday, and he told me that uh, if this 
weather doesn't turn around uh, by next week, he's not going to plant anything. He uh, cannot put that uh, investment into the ground and uh, just hope for the best because uh, there's a lot of money that's invested uh, into planting a crop. And if you don't have a guaranteed return, you're basically losing money right away, even before you see any dollars coming back from your, uh, your grain that you have to sell in the fall. Marcus, here's hoping that we get exactly what you need and we get things turned around and that this is only a once-in-a-100-year type of thing. Thanks so much for joining us today on London Live. You're more than welcome. Marcus Harley, chair of the Grain Farmers of Canada. So, bleak spring, bit of a bleak outlook. Things can turn around, but when you talk about, hey, it's not worth the investment of even attempting to put the seeds in the ground for some farmers, yeah, that's tough. Because ultimately that does affect the price of things. If you don't have the supply and you still have the demand, you know what takes place. So here's hoping this weekend turns it around that we can get that week of weather. And then maybe we get the push into late September. That's what Marcus had said. If you can get, you know, stay away from those frosts let's say late September, early October, and maybe the growing season extends itself a little bit. Uh, well, keep your fingers crossed. That's that's farming right there, isn't it? We'll take a break. It is, of course, the 75th anniversary of D-Day. Up next, another story from another individual who was there. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Thanks to the Memory Project, we are still able to hear from veterans who contributed to what happened on this day 75 years ago. We're lucky enough still to have some of those veterans with us as we talked with President and CEO of Historica Canada, Anthony Wilson-Smith. There are still 15 active speakers in this area, and there are still veterans who survived the Second World War. A lot of their stories have been cataloged by the Memory Project. Here is another one of those stories. Here is Reuben Patrick. We trained, we trained, we uh, tried to, uh, to train as best we could so that when we got in action that uh, we could survive. We had an idea what it was going on, but uh, once you get in the front line, it's not what they teach you in the book or in training. I mean, part of it helps you, but uh, when you get in, in the front line, it's everybody for himself. You survive or else you get killed. If you don't kill, they'll kill you. So you haven't got no choice. <laughs> the only special event that I can really recall is when we got bombed by our own plane. I was laying down, we come back from the front line and uh, we had a bath, a shave, and it was a beautiful day. And uh, I was laying down and I was like this in the sun, sun painting, and there was plane come over and they see the bomb bay open up and the bloody bomb come down. Why did you make you move? <laughs> and uh, I was missing for two weeks because I, I took off for the beach. <laughs> I said, the hell with that. You can't 
you can't blame them because <clears throat> I can understand it because the poor guys, they leave England and they got a certain spot that they're supposed to drop their bomb. By the time they leave England and they moved up there, we're already there. We were advancing so fast. By the time the plane come up there, they drop the plane and they don't give a darn what's under there because they, they don't know if it's German that's trying to stop them or, or us. And they got orders. We can't communicate with those guys. We haven't got the communication they have today. So you can't blame them. That is Reuben Patrick. He was on the beaches and then a little bit about life after today, 75 years ago, when, as he says, they had to run away from one of their own bombs. News is coming up next. We will have another story, and we'll also have a little something else that has been done to honor the memory of D-Day. Plus, we're going to talk about one of the fastest rising cancers in Canada. At least it has a little bit of positive news, optimistic news tied to it. That's next on London Live and Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Watch the movie The Professor on the weekend with Johnny Depp. I love Johnny Depp. Great actor. Even love him in those pirate movies. But that's that's not what this one was about. But I don't know if you have this thing. In the movie, I'm not giving really anything away by telling you he has lung cancer. And... I'm one of those people that will look and go, okay, well, now I know those symptoms. I'm going to be on the lookout for that. And then you start thinking, well, wait a minute. What, a, what about this? What about that? That's just, just me. You know, I can fall into a hypochondriac form pretty quickly, pretty regularly, to tell you the truth. Ask my wife. Well, I don't want to do this next story to create that kind of a feeling. Because we are going to be talking about the fastest rising cancer in Canada, and it's one that you could think, well, wait a minute, what's, let me just feel my neck here for a second. I don't want you doing that. Don't feel your neck here just for a second. This is not because a number of people are suddenly going to be diagnosed with this. It is the fastest rising cancer, but there is something optimistic about it, and there's also something that we need to appreciate about it because there's a connection to HPV, Okay. It's a virus that kids get checked out for pretty regularly, and it's one that can cause usually cervical cancer, but in this case, it's being linked to a different kind of cancer. However, there is a study that has been done, and we're going to talk with one of the study authors right now, that, again, leads us to an optimistic point of view on all of this, and does talk about robotic surgery at the same time. Please welcome to London Live, Dr. Anthony Nichols, Associate Professor of Head and Neck Surgery at Western University, and one of the authors of a study that does look at the fastest rising cancer in Canada, and does also look at how to treat it. Dr. Nichols, how are things going for a Thursday? Oh, the day's going very well. Yourself? Not too bad. Robotic surgery sounds like a really cool thing. We have seen countless documentaries and news stories on how robotic surgery is changing medicine. You've been able to look at robotic surgery 
as it pertains to a certain type of surgery. Can you enlighten us on what you looked into? Yeah, no, I, I certainly can. So um, the fastest rising cancer in Canada is actually uh, cancers of the tonsils and of the back of the tongue. And the reason why that is, is that human papillomavirus, which we know causes cervical cancer, has over the last decade or so been identified to cause cancer in this, this specific area of the throat. There's some immune tissue that the virus seems to have a real predilection for. And what we believe happens is that people uh, get infected when they become sexually active in their teens and 20s, and little bits of the virus lays around. We don't think that they're infectious, but can turn into a cancer. Little bits of the DNA can cause the cells there to become cancerous with an average age of about 60 in southwestern Ontario. And so a lot of these people show up with a lump of, uh, in their neck and something in their tonsil or the back of their tongue. And uh, so this area of the throat is called the oropharynx. And as I said, it's the fastest rising cancer in Canada. And although human papillomavirus has been historically linked to cervical cancer, there's actually now more cases of oropharyngeal cancer than there is of cervical cancer. And so while this is bad that this is what gave these patients this cancer, the cure rates for these human papillomavirus-related throat cancers is extremely high, over 80%. And if patients have never smoked, it's over 90%. And so what we're trying to do is not just best ways to cure them, but also give patients the best quality of life after treatment. Okay, and we'll get into how exactly you do that, but anyone listening may say, I I don't know whether I have HPV. Is there a way to be tested later in life to see if you do even have the virus? Uh, Unfortunately, there there isn't. There's ways that are research-based and experimental, but it's not like with cervical cancer, right? So the reason why cervical cancer rates are so low is the pap smear test. And so people pick it up early and it can be screened and uh, treated appropriately so it doesn't progress to cancer. But in the oropharynx and the tonsil on the back of the tongue, there's no equivalent test. People have tried, but there's not an accurate test yet. And so people often show up with... Uh, cancer in their tonsil or back of tongue is actually spread to the lymph nodes, and it's usually quite a surprise to them because most of these patients have never smoked or never drank a day in their life. We're talking with Dr. Anthony Nichols, Associate Professor of Head and Neck Surgery at Western University. And Dr. Nichols has outlined the fastest rising cancer in Canada being throat cancer. Not only that, you've gone into looking at how to treat this. Now, you mentioned, hey, the, the survival rate is fantastic. When you have a cancer of this type, what are the options for patients? Yep. So uh, historically, these patients have been largely managed across Canada with radiation, usually with some chemotherapy as well. And so while it offers patients high cure rates, uh, historic radiation can have significant side effects both during treatment, but can last even years out and people can have trouble. So in light of that, seeing these significant side effects for our patients and impacts on their quality of life, there's been a tremendous interest, particularly within the United States, is with treating these patients with minimally invasive surgery. So going through the mouth and either using a surgical robot, which we are doing, or with a laser to kind of get around the corners to see way back in the back of the throat has allowed people to access these patient, these tumors minimally invasively. And where are you at right now in terms of studying this? 
Yep. So we've had our first study that's just been completed and uh, just accepted for publication. And it's a modestly sized study of 68 patients. And the reason why it's small is part of it, it's very challenging to randomize patients to surgery versus radiation. As you can imagine, that's like a very different thing. But we argued because patients were treated historically at centers in Canada with radiation that the robot surgery was experimental, right? So we only offered it on study. And you know, it was 68 patients to study, but we specifically, statistically powered the study to look at differences in swallowing outcomes. And very interestingly, when we carefully compared the groups, the surgery group actually looked like it had slightly worse swallowing outcomes than the radiation group, which is really flies in the face of all the existing data that there is to date, that the surgery patients clearly did better. We're talking right now with Dr. Anthony Nichols, Associate Professor of Head and Neck Surgery at Western University. So what do you do then when you come across something that seems like a a brand new finding in terms of how to treat the fastest rising cancer in Canada? At worst, it shows that modern radiation, especially in uh, high-quality centers like we have across Canada, does provide good outcomes, and it, it really gives informed patient options so the patients can know the risks of each study. And at some centers in Canada or the United States, it actually may signal a treatment reversal that, you know what, surgery isn't clearly better. Because in the United, although most places in Canada treat with radiation first, in the United States, about 80% of these patients get surgery first. And there's this huge shift when the robot was implemented that patients wanted it, surgeons wanted to operate, and a huge shift in patient care based on this more limited level of evidence. And now with this carefully controlled trial, maybe some doctors and patients will be changing their opinion. Love hearing advancements in medicine. Dr. Nichols, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time. Dr. Anthony Nichols, Associate Professor of Head and Neck Surgery at Western University. So to summarize that, yes... They have been looking at one of the fastest rising cancers in Canada, but they've been looking at the ways to treat it and realizing that there have kind of been changes in both, and that will help to treat it. And the numbers in terms of survival rates have been very good, so maybe it makes them even better. Here's hoping. Lots of great things happening in this area. It is, of course, as we have been focusing in on throughout the show today, the 75th anniversary of D-Day have one more veteran story to listen to when we come back, courtesy of the Memory Project. And then we're going to close out the show today with Jim Radford, the youngest known D-Day veteran, and a song that he wrote and has performed and is being downloaded all over the place now called The Shores of Normandy. That's still to come. This is London Live on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. This is London Live. And we have been, courtesy of the Memory Project, bringing you stories of people who were at Normandy on D-Day. Here is Paul Thomas Sterling, a member of the Queen's Own Rifles. Being in the engineers, which I originally joined, we had uh, various training in relation to uh, booby traps, mines, Bailey bridges, etc. However... As time approached the impending D-Day, suddenly we were uh, brought together and uh, stated that uh, the uh, infantry was short on uh, men. So therefore, we are going to transfer the engineers, which they said were surplus, uh, to infantry. 
the various infantry battalions. And uh, you are going to be in the infantry, and uh, you do have a choice of what regiment you would like to belong. So therefore, suddenly, I was now in the Queen's Own Rifles in preparation for D-Day. As we uh, approached the June date, we were uh, transported down to the shoreline of England in preparation for the delay landings. But we did sit on the vessel for two days, and then uh, we uh, finally took off. And uh, when we approached the shores of uh, Normandy, we were taken off the vessel by rope ladder into LSTs. You could practically walk from ship to ship. There were that many at that particular time, including uh, various warships as well, the battleships. Naturally, the shelling took place from uh, the various vessels, and uh, we were brought into a circular design after we uh, got on board the LSTs. Then we proceeded to the shore. Now, our particular LST uh, hit a uh, sandbar, and naturally we were delayed in getting on shore. Now, as much as the Navy men tried to release the uh, LST, they were unable to do so. So therefore, we were at least two to three hours late. Now, we had no alternative other than to offload from the LST into water that was waist deep. And uh, as we proceeded to the shore, some of the shorter guys started to float because they no longer could feel the depth of the water. And uh, they were no longer on stable ground. They started to float away. Naturally, we had packs on, and uh, these substituted for floating vessels, you might say. So anyway, we did get on shore and uh, uh, proceeded uh, into the area of Bernier-sur-Mer. To say the least, I was most apprehensive about it, but uh, to be perfectly honest with you, I was completely scared. Uh, Everybody, uh, you were there. You were told that you had to advance, and uh, regardless of the amount of uh, firepower that they had, you kept on going, and uh, eventually, uh, luckily, you made it. Paul Thomas Sterling, member of the Queen's Own Rifles. One final break on London Live. Next up, you'll hear a song done by the youngest known D-Day veteran. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Jim Radford was 15 years of age on D-Day. The youngest known D-Day veteran. He's composed and performed a song. And that song is called The Shores of Normandy. And on this, the 75th anniversary of D-Day, this is how we'll close out London Live.
cold gray light of the 6th of June in the year of 44. The Empire Lark sailed out from Poe to join with thousands more. The largest fleet the world had seen. We sailed in close array and we set our course for Normandy at the dawning of the day. There was not one man in all our crew but knew what lay in store. For we had waited for that day through five long years of war. We knew that many would not return But all our hearts were true For we were bound for Normandy Where we had a job to do Now the Empire Arch was a deep sea tub With a crew of 33 And I was just the galley boy on my first trip to sea I little thought when I left home of the dreadful sights I'd see But I came to manhood on the day that I first saw Normandy At Aramash off the beach of gold neath the rocket's deadly glare we towed our block ships into place And we built a harbour there Mid shot and shell we built it well As history does agree While brave men died in the swirling tide On the shores of Normandy For every hero's name that's known a thousand died as well On stakes and wires their bodies all Rocked in the ocean swell And many a mother wept that day For the sons they loved so well Men who cracked a joke And catch the smoke As they stormed the gates of hell As the years pass by, I can still recall the men I saw that day Who died upon that blood-soaked sand where now sweet children play And those of you who were unborn, who've lived in liberty Remember those who made it so on the shores of Normandy. That is Jim Radford, youngest known D-Day veteran. 75 years ago today. 
That is it for London Live. Thanks to Kelly Wong for her help. London Live is brought to you by Courtesy Ford Lincoln at 684 Warncliffe Road South. News is next. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL.